The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave Edwards from Saunders Studio. We created Saunders Studio to empower humans in our complex age of machines and data. Our research-based, design-oriented consulting and education services help you and your organization work better with machines and data. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com. We're always looking for new ideas from science that we can use in our work. Over the past few years, we've been researching new ways to handle increasing complexity in the world and how to solve complex problems. Why do we seem to see emergent, adaptive, open, and networked problems more often? Why don't they yield to traditional problem-solving techniques? Our research is centered on complexity science and understanding how to apply its lessons to problem-solving. Complexity science teaches us about the nature of complex systems, including the nervous system, ecosystems, economies, social communities, and the Internet. It teaches us ways to identify opportunities for change through metaphor, models, and math— and ways to synchronize change through incentives. The Santa Fe Institute has been at the center of our complexity research journey. Founded in 1984, SFI is the leading research institute on complexity science. Its researchers endeavor to understand and unify the underlying shared patterns in complex physical, biological, social, cultural, technological, and even possible astrobiological worlds. We encourage anyone interested in this topic to wander through the ample and diverse resources on the SFI website, SFI publications, and SFI courses. We had the pleasure of digging into complexity science and its applications with one of the leading minds in complexity, David Krakauer, who is president and William H. Miller Professor of Complex Systems at SFI. David's research explores the evolution of intelligence and stupidity on Earth. This includes studying the evolution of genetic, neuro-linguistic, social, and cultural mechanisms supporting memory and information processing, and exploring their shared properties. He served as the founding director of the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery, the co-director of the Center for Complexity and Collective Computation, and professor of mathematical genetics, all at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been a visiting fellow at the Genomics Frontiers Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, a SAGE fellow at the SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and longtime fellow of the Institute for Advanced Study and visiting professor of evolution at Princeton University, a graduate of the University of London, where he went on to earn degrees in biology and computer science. Dr. Krakauer received his Doctor of Philosophy in Evolutionary Theory from Oxford University. David, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to talk with you. Can you perhaps start off by um, telling us how do you like to define complexity for people who are new to the concept? Yes. So, um, hello. <laughs> nice to be with you. Um, it depends, really, on how much time I have, right? So in a few seconds, 
it's the principles that essentially regulate the adaptive universe and um, from cells through to societies and civilizations, right? In other words, and I say adaptive, not living, because when people think living, they think biology. They don't think society necessarily, so I say adaptive. So that's the shortest. Um, All the way through to more elaborate definitions, um, with an important caveat in mind, right? If I ask you what's history or what's English, or what's archaeology. It's not easy, right? I mean, um, so it's never easy to define a discipline. But one way you can do it, or I find handy, is to make a distinction between the domain that you're interested in, what we call ontology, right, the reality, and the methods, the epistemology. And complexity, like all other disciplines, has both, right? Um, But there's an important difference. So physics, what do physicists study? Well, if you go to a physics department, think electrons and atoms and black holes and somehow the the non-living, the non-adaptive universe they seem to study. And, um, And yet, if you ask an average physicist these days, I bet you about 20% of them are studying biology. So then you'd say, well, wait a minute, why is that physics? And the only way they can answer that is by saying it's about the methods we use. Because as physicists, we're interested in universal laws, right? And we're interested in encoding them with elegant mathematics. So all of these disciplines are defined that way. So the difference with complexity, I'd say, is it puts the... It puts the principles first and the domain second. And we're less interested in the domain, right? So um, we're interested in things like energy and information and computation and structures like networks and properties like scaling. That comes first. That's what, And we apply them to a range of phenomena where they feel relevant. Um, so a university that was structured according to complexity would not have departments, Right, um, you would have expertise, but you'd have this much more generalized faculty that had this shared language uh, of the deepest principles that they could then apply to a variety of phenomena. So, so those are two ways to think about it. But the deepest point is, we believe that living reality requires new formal principles, like the principles in physics, that respect. Uh, their unique properties, uh, their adaptive properties. That makes um, it makes me think about how we work when we go into an organisation that we don't really think in disciplinary terms. We think in principle terms. And our principles in the past have, have kind of come from design and applied to AI and applied to um, groups of people and organizations trying to make decisions and solve problems, and giving them this a concept that they can kind of grab onto, that they can apply across lots of different areas, in so many ways seems to be, in practical terms, way more useful than following a set of rules, much more flexible. Um, but the key is to sort of give them the language so that they can actually share the ideas and concepts. And I heard you talk 
a while back, um, I think on a, might have been a discussion with, uh, Sam Harris about, um, math models and metaphor as a way to discuss and communicate some of these ideas from complexity. And um, I'm kind of intrigued as to how that idea has moved on in your own mind as you've um, seen more people start to become interested in complexity as a set of principles. Has that structure stayed the same and maybe explained, if it has, maybe sort of explained it a little bit more? Yeah, I think more or less. Um, you know, the metaphor is the most welcoming generalized it's the most language. human <laughs> it's true it's certainly yes. most human right and um and the, the the point being that you can map a concept onto a very broad range of related ideas through the metaphor it's very powerful but it's also very misleading and and that's why you have to sort of move down this path towards incrementally more rigor through to a model. Now, a model can be um, articulated in natural language. Um, it can also be written in code. And once you've reached that point, you've had to be more precise in what you mean, right? Because otherwise it won't run. So there's this restriction imposed on us by the code. And then the ultimate um, distillation and clarification, and, and yet... <laughs> most um, difficult, I guess, to broadly comprehend is mathematics. And so there is this natural, I think, um, path that one follows as one comes to a better and better understanding of a concept or a principle. And I don't think you can stop. I mean, we don't stop at the metaphor. I mean, one could. Uh, it's not what we do at SFI. We really try to get as far as we can. Um, so I think that remains very valid. A very interesting open question is, it might be that for some concepts that path just hits a wall and it can't be mathematized, right? And that happens frequently, and what people do is they sort of cheat. They kind of vault the wall, they, they, and uh, they're no longer remaining true to the concept they first had in mind. They're just spuriously mathematizing something else, and so it's not just the metaphor that can be dangerous, but the formalization, if the formalization doesn't remain true to the structure of the concept. So um, it's really fraught, this this business. But I, I, I stick by the basic concept. I think mm, where I do get a little frustrated, I think, is that um, when people are reluctant to move beyond the metaphor, I think or when it's appropriated for some other ideological purpose that is not necessarily clear to you, right? Which one can do quite easily, actually, with metaphors. Well, you can <clears throat> twist them a little bit like torturing the data and have it, having it say anything you want, confess to anything you want, that, that ultimate quote. Because I, I'm, I'm interested to pull on this metaphor thread a little bit more, just because... It is so welcoming and it is so natural for people. Um, and, and it is the first place for the vast majority of people where complexity science offers um, 
uh, a level of explanation that sort of makes people feel that, that maybe they can understand their current problem in a slightly different way. A classic example is um, trying to understand uh, the way social movements respond to things on Twitter, for example, or, or in other social media. Um, and there's a couple of case studies that we use around um, the way uh, the, the Disney example of, of mm. organizing around um, the uh, T-shirt. The t-shirt. Do you want to describe that? Yeah, it was a fascinating problem. Where, uh, Disney had a uh, uh, earnings release where they were talking about the financial performance of the company. And um, they said something about there being an unfavorable mix of, of attendees at the theme parks because there were many more people who were on annual pass versus day pass. So that's affected their economics. And they, I think they probably thought that was kind of a simple answer to a simple question of here's where our earnings are. What they missed was the emergent system that then happened, which was all those people on annual passes decided they didn't like being called unfavorable. So they started creating t-shirts that said unfavorable attendee and posting it up on TikTok and going crazy, right? So this this simple question, simple answer suddenly became a complex problem that they had no idea how to, how to handle that. What do you do about that afterwards? Some sort of combination of network and butterfly effect and then ex explaining those in those sort of terms people go oh i see the i conceptualize the problem really differently and there's there's almost the shift from this everything's complicated to oh everything's complex and you watch mm. that shift um and there's this promise that there's new ways to solve the problem but it almost feels like you hit that wall really fast when it comes to, well, what is the solution? And helping people either know when they've hit the wall or how they might actually keep going to the model phase or how to keep the metaphor accurate and live and with the fidelity that's required and the precision and their reasoning that's required to actually um, come up with a solution without a huge mathematical model that they'll never have. And it's almost um, sort of this multifaceted uh, process of, of helping people just sort of get to that point that they can um, wrangle the problem differently. And I'm really curious as to how, you, how you're seeing um, this transition from complexity science being something that really is quite um, scientific – and in the walls of SFI and other places that study complexity into where people want to start using these ideas and almost like new heuristics, different kinds of intuitions for the world in the problems that they see every day. Yeah, no, it's a very tricky, um, I've, I've thought about this a lot and it's not easy to find precedent, um, Imagine that we were in the 17th century and we were talking to Isaac Newton and he had published, you know, the Principia, his theory of gravity, and had lots of calculus in it. And you were having this conversation with me, David, explain to me how Newton's theory of fluxions could help us understand society. And I suspect I mean, I know quite a bit about the life of Newton. Um, he would just, you know, 
shut this podcast down. You know, he was a pretty difficult man. <laughs> um, so, thank you for not um, being that difficult. <laughs> yeah, uh, not that, not that smart and not that difficult. And I think that the, um, so there is this question of science taking centuries often, right, for the, for its, discoveries to diffuse out and become useful. There isn't a single model of society now that isn't based on some dynamical system that can be traced back to calculus, the use of the calculus. So it finds its use, but it takes a long time. Complexity is in this rather strange um, predicament or situation, or, or has a certain advantage, where the tools have this almost instantaneous, um, as you say, um, sort of semiotic value. And I think you made a very good point when you said butterfly effect and network. Absolutely, right? I mean, I know exactly what you mean, and that was a sort of shorthand for a lot of technical work. But you can... And I think you're right. I think... um, And it's interesting for us to delve into why that's possible, actually. Um, But I will point out one of the dangers of that, because the butterfly effect, technically speaking is a property of so-called low-dimensional deterministic dynamical systems, okay? And Lorenz, who first uh, described them using a system of equations called the Lorenz equations, actually, at this point, um, simplified the equations of a Newtonian fluid, and that's the so-called Navier-Stokes equations, made a whole series of simplifying assumptions to, to arrive at those equations from which he then discovered the butterfly effect, right? Turns out the butterfly effect, rigorously speaking, is very rare. What's not rare is that small perturbations to complex systems can be highly consequential. But they're not technically butterfly effects. So something's happened. Uh, now, I don't mind, because I think, to your point, butterfly effect captures the essential concept. But if you move from the metaphor to the model, you quickly realize, oh, we're not talking about butterfly effects. We're talking about something more like a phase transition. Different concept. Also useful, right? Um, and networks also, to take that example, you know, um, networks are one thing, you know, they're, and you can easily visualize them. Dynamics on networks are something different altogether. So how information moves across them can't be easily predicted from looking at the structure. So again, it has that property where you're sort of seduced into a kind of comprehension that might be right, I'm not saying it isn't, but could easily be wrong. And um, and so this is actually, in some sense, the essential tension of the comparative advantage that complexity science has over the disciplines. On the one hand, yes, we are this incredibly fertile source of powerful conceptual metaphor. On the other hand, they're very easily misappropriated and abused. And, um, you know, that's an interesting situation to be in. It is, it is a difficult thing because you're not sure in any particular situation, whether having a grasp of a metaphor is enough to help you put the situation in context enough, enough to be able to think about it in a new way. And that's valuable enough. Even if the metaphor is, you can't extend the metaphor all the way through model and math to be truly mathematically correct in that situation. And is that okay? Versus "Mm, you're actually going down the wrong path. 
you know, and metaphors are so powerful. I mean, one of my favorite metaphors from my past is when, uh, you know, two decades ago, when we launched a, a product called, uh, you know, iPhoto at the time, the, the, the pitch was it's your digital shoebox. And it had a photo of a shoebox with photos coming out of it because that's how people used to store their photos. It was wonderful, right? It gave people a total idea of, oh, I get the idea of what this is going to do for me. But it wasn't actually a digital shoebox. It wasn't actually a box that things sat in. It didn't actually organize things based on the way that you would get them from the, you know, from your photo, you know, uh, printer or whatever. But it was good enough to get you there. But I can see how the challenges in when we're thinking about applying a science is I can, I can understand and appreciate your hesitancy to say, yes, that might be okay, but big, but uh, there's lots of other times when that takes you down the wrong path and you're doing the wrong thing because you're actually applying something that has a very specific meaning because at some point someone established the math and came back to a metaphor that was kind of nice and became part of our colloquial conversation, but you're misapplying it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, um, I'm less critical than most, I think, of expanding the vocabulary with technical terminology whose provenance is some rigorous domain, right? I, I, as far as I'm concerned, anything that allows us to think more carefully <laughs> at any level is valuable, right? Unless it's weaponized, in which case we should be careful. Um, and it does happen, as we all know, with these kinds of ideas. I think... Um, but let me give you an example where things can go wrong. So um, everyone's familiar with this idea of six degrees of separation, right? And the small world effect, right? And what is that mathematically? Well, mathematically, it says that, and I'll say this technically and then I'll explain it, um, as a system size increases in N, the number of degrees required to connect people grows as the logarithm of N, or, stated in a more friendly way, um, as you increase uh, the powers of 10, you only have to increase the degree by a single digit. So um, the degrees of separation when you have 10 people is 1. The degrees of separation when you have 100 people is 2. And 1,000 people is 3. Okay? And it's quite counterintuitive, that result. And it comes out of a very particular network architecture. You can change that network architecture a little, and that's no longer true. So this intuitive idea we have that networks give us close connectivity, like six degrees of separation, is true if your network is a so-called small world topology. If it has a power law topology, or, well, that might not be true anymore. And so this is where it starts to matter. If, if you turn the metaphor into an instrumental practice, right, in other words, you act on it, then it starts to matter. And, um, but if it, you're remaining at the, at the stage of saying networks matter, um, there are efficiencies that we wouldn't have been aware of if we didn't think in those terms, um, then it's fine. And, and so it really comes down to us being honest with the idea. I, I love the separation of sort of understanding and putting it into instrumental practice. I think that's a, it's a wonderful um, line to understand where you are on it. Which side of that line are you sitting on? 
whenever we take one of these, because um, you know we we don't want to we, we we don't want to vault the wall when we shouldn't. You know, that would be a really this bad for business. <laughs> I think we're a bit too old to vault walls anyway. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and you know and start thinking about. I mean, there, but there are these sort of gleaning some meta rule that people can use as an as a way of thinking through a problem. Some of them are incredibly attractive and you can just sort of grab on. They just sort of grab you straight away. Um, uh, the, 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 the paper that we um, originally reached out to you around institutional dynamics and learning networks, um, some of the, the, the work that you, that you and I think it was Jessica Flack did mm-hmm, around yes. um, um, the, the influence of constitutions and um, the uh, different learning rules that, that might exist in different situations, tipping points and volatile or some of these um, slow and slow burning type situations, the seatbelt laws and those kinds of things. They, they allow us almost to, um, to, to just put things into different categorical buckets. We can almost categorize things differently and we start to put different names on them. But coming up with solutions is still difficult. And when we do, what we find people still running into is, especially with the, some of the ideas from complexity, even at a conceptual level, it's like you can characterize the system really well and you can, you can watch the explorables and you can, you know, you can get really quite excited about what they might tell you about a system. But when it comes to actually predicting what might happen at any given point in time, most people are lost most of the time. It actually ends up making things feel more understandable, but even less certain. And yeah. uh, this sort of battling with just the this realization of just how uncertain things really are, even if you've got quite a good mental model for the way the system's oscillating or moving here or moving there, you still can't predict what's going to happen at any particular point in time. You still got to come up with some way of controlling the situation in real life. And um, I'm interested if you think differently now, or you watch people think differently now about um, uncertainty and whether they should be optimizing for one thing or allowing much more flexibility in systems to handle variability and uncertainty or whether this is just something that people just aren't very good at yeah so there's three different i don't know where to go there's lots of places to go there because (laughs) one is which is fine i mean one is um this whole interest we've had in theories of change um in relation to revolutions for example not just social intellectual um scientific you know and I, I would like to talk about that a bit. I think it's a very difficult problem. And then there's, as you say, various connected issues associated with risk aversion, which is one of the reasons why we don't have as many conceptual revolutions as we should. Um, so let me just start maybe a little bit on that paper that you mentioned with Jess and Philip, because to explain why we were interested in it. Um, you know, I've always been just bemused by the fact that it took over a thousand years 
in the face of overwhelming evidence for us to reject the Ptolemaic model, right, that the Earth was the centre of the solar system. It's like everyone knew, based on the data, this wasn't true. (laughs) What is going on here? Um, And that was one. And there are several others, you know, this idea that animal life comes into existence spontaneously on its own, right? You don't need parents. It's somehow a, little miracles happen all over the place. Interestingly, by the way, um, if you look at early um, Renaissance and medieval illustrations of Noah's Ark, there's always these very charismatic large animals, but there are never insects. Why? Because they didn't need to be on the Ark, because they came into... Uh, they just spontaneously emerged um, through some miracles. So there's all these ideas, sort of a shocking fact. So why does society change its mind? You know, why was sexism so persistent? Why did it take so long for universal suffrage? Why is racism still something we're even talking about, given its utter stupidity so there are things like that that bother me and i'd like to understand and um and one of the ways of getting into this issue is through the concept of emergence which is very deep for us um which in in essence tries to explain the relationships between levels i mean an obvious one would be the level of neurons in a brain and the level of mind Right or the level of indiv- individual decisions and the level of societies and polities. And it turns out those mappings between levels are very, very nonlinear um, and very difficult to, to control. And so at the level of individuals, we understand the absurdity of, of prejudicial belief. And give me enough time with someone, and I'd hope I could convince them based on the weight of evidence... Um, if they were racist, for example, that there was no basis to their belief. But how that gets turned into the collective phenomenon is actually very, very complicated. And I think much of our thinking and many of our policies are still very individual-centric. We believe, if I could just convince you, then everything will be okay. And it's not okay, because society has its own dynamic, its own emergent, if you like, dynamic, so that part of that people, and we can get into it, was an, an effort to try and understand how the levels are connected. And I don't think that until we really accept and come to terms with that fact, we'll really change society very much. Uh, because so many of our intuitions are aimed at individual change, right? And, and that's sort of what we talk about, great teachers. I had a wonderful teacher at school. That's true. It's not enough. And um, so, okay, Uh, then the question is, what are all the forces of resistance and um, why this fear of uncertainty? And I think part of that has to do with the way we're educated, quite frankly, in that case, because so much of education is about exactitude and procedures that always work. Um the a fairly black and white conception of what it means to be successful, the absolute overwhelming emphasis that we place on juvenile metrics to measure our accomplishments. Society is utterly complicit in risk aversion. Um, and then there's all the data, of course, on sort of 
experimental psychological studies on why we have it. And I, but I'm not really that focused on that, actually. I, I'm much more interested in, if you like, the systems of belief that tend to militate against a willingness to take risks. Um, anyway. I, I, I love this discussion around the how a society, a group of people, small, large, can change their views, right? Essentially is kind of where I'm getting at. And I, I, I wonder if I could take this into a, a sort of a, a very uh, uh, individual practical question, which is um, a certain number of large companies are now experiencing their employees coming together wanting to unionize, right? So this is a a society built around their employment, if you will, society, group of people. And they're changing their, it's an emergent behavior that they're deciding to unionize as an individual, as groups of people in different locations coming together. And I wonder what you would say to, you know, leaders of those companies who say, we'd like to change that system. We'd like to push on that system to have a different outcome. And how they can think about that and also how they could think about whether any of the the changes, the pushes that they make in that system are actually having an effect. Because if you can't accurately, you know, model, I mean, because it, it's so, it's definitely so complex to understand, to have an accurate forecast of, say, percentage of employees who will be unionized in two years, how can you know that the change that you've had has actually had an, had an, had an effect? So I wonder, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so first of the the first point is sort of some humility in <laughs> recognizing that you probably your intuitions are probably wrong. I mean, that's the first point. Um, <laughs> but then there are these. I think it's very useful, you know, to look at the 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 philosophy of scientific revolutions here. Um, and interestingly, because one of the first theorists of this was also the theorist of social change, and that was Karl Popper. So Karl Popper writes a whole series of books in the 30s on how we come to empirically justified belief. And he has this very interesting framework based on conjectures and refutations, right? You make wild conjectures and ruthless refutations. That was his view. And Nothing should in any way impede the generation of novel concepts. That can be insane, right? Uh, but the process of elimination should be rigorous and exacting, okay? He, 40 years later, wrote a book called The Open Society. And this was a book that was his attack on Hegel and dialectical materialism, which then became... Marxist-Leninism and so on. This was his own personal bugbear. What he didn't like about um, di the dialectic was that, according and I, this sounds like a weird esoteric um, excursion, but we'll get, we'll get to your point, is that he felt that Hegel overemphasized the idea of coherence. It wasn't about something being wacky and then proven right or wrong, or, or in, this, in his case, eliminated. Um, but reconciled with an existing body of knowledge. That was the dialectic that Hegel was interested in. And, and Popper thought societies that were simply trying to accommodate alternative frameworks were going to accumulate superstition. All right, so that's Popper. Um, 
Other philosophers have very different views. The one who's perhaps most influential was Thomas Kuhn in his idea of the paradigm, the logic of science. And Kuhn had a very different view to Popper's. He said, actually, science doesn't work that way at all. It's, it's extremely tolerant of ideas that are wrong. The way it works is it forges language communities. And these communities have shared values and shared languages. And they all vie for, for supremacy. He called these communities paradigms. These are languages with propositional structure, right, with predictions, with, uh, with a logic. And most of the time we're living in an era which dominated by one of these communities and pa- or paradigms. Um, and revolutionary periods are when these new ones, for some reason, take over. And it doesn't have to do necessarily with whether or not they're cleaving more closely to empirical reality. So this is a more sociological take. And I have to say that for some phenomena I'm Popperian, and for some I'm Kuhnian. And and the, the structures that you're talking about are closer to Thomas Kuhn. When you're in the domain which is dominantly social, not empirically veridical, then the kinds of community-building exercises that you're describing, I think, are more important and probably are how ideas are changed. And when you then try to be Popperian on top of that, like a totalitarian CEO, who says, actually, no, I'm going to treat you like a lab experiment where I can hypothesize and reject as if you're a little microbe in a Petri dish, right? It's a clash of two philosophies of science, or two philosophies of change. And I, I, I actually think they're incommensurable. Or, sort of, to use a liquid analogy, they're immiscible. And um, I have my own views about what's going on now, and I find it actually quite, dis- you know, inhuman, actually, that uh, CEOs should expect loyalty and then have none in return. But that's my own personal view on these things. But I think that. Um, this idea that you could impose top-down sort of the... an almost engineered technique um, is highly hubristic, and I think at odds, actually, with the structure of that particular complex system um, that doesn't conform to that simple Popperian model. So I think it's a kind of a category error, actually, to even think in those terms. And then the question becomes, and we call this emergent engineering, actually... What can you do? And and my sense is, instead of making proclamations by fiat, you actually think extremely carefully about incentives and learning. And it's a much slower process. It's a much more distributed one. Its outcomes are more uncertain. But they're the only ones that actually work. <laughs> so, um, But anyway, that, that's uh, one other thing. It's a path. It's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily synchronize with quarterly earnings reports, but it um, it is the only way to actually change that many hearts and minds, if you will. Um, um, I think so because yes, as you say, it's it's not about the target. You leave the target out of the conversation, and you establish a, a set of pro-social norms if you're so inclined, as I think we all are, um, that maximize liberty, um, freedom of expression, and 
leave the outcome somewhat undefined. Um, and, and of course, what we studied in those papers are the rules that lock you in and the rules that ala- enable you to explore. And that's where it starts getting useful and the science comes back into the equation because um, complexity science gives you an insight into rules that are more likely to be exploratory and uh, evolvable, if you like, uh, as opposed to the ones that will lead to stasis. There was a um, in the in the paper particularly talking about some of these learning rules around um, competition and lock-in, and the um, the self-reinforcing nature of some learning rules leading in one particular direction, whereas uh, other learning rules being more open and exploratory. But you, it seemed like in those examples that you had to accept that the that the outcome would be. Um, more like oscillation or flip-flopping or constant change. And on one level, that sounds sort of, there's a bit of a no-da with that, right? And they're sort of, oh, well, if you're going to be constantly exploring, there's going to be more change. But it's, is there a way to find the, a, a, a way in the middle where people can think about how to um, almost bound these, like guardrails, like how would you know you've got too much flip-flopping or too much exploration versus being able to sort of settle down and, and exploit from one particular um, base of knowledge. As we do see, one of the things that people really wrestle with is indecision because every time they think something's clear, the data changes or someone says something different or the world obviously changes. There never seems to be the stable position for action and thinking about it as Either whether it's explore exploit or whether it's a different kind of learning rule or a different sort of incentive, how do you even design that? Like, is that things that we know yet? Oh yes, definitely. I mean, that's that's where it starts becoming more like this emergent engineering. So that word engineering is relevant here. Um, let me think. Um, let me give you an example, actually, of a recent argument that I've been having in in print. Uh, with uh, Danny Kahneman and Kassan Oh, this is the noise one? This is the noise one. I love these letters. (laughs) Yeah, and we had this argument, as you know, right, online, and and, and we published it in a a journal article. And Danny and his colleagues published this book saying that it's not only bias that's a problem in the world, but noise. So let's see, to get to your second part of your opening question about uncertainty. So uncertainty technically um, is defined as the variance of the distribution around the mean that you desire, right? So the uncertainty is is the variance, essentially. Um, What creates variance? Noise, okay? And so Danny then is interested in helping firms produce reliable outcomes, for example... Uh, actuaries um, who are evaluating insurance claims. You don't want them to be noisy, right? You want them to be accurate. And he did these very famous early experiments where he gives the same claims <laughs> to different auditors and they will have different recommendations, which seems like a problem. Well, the question is, is it a problem? And uh, I don't think that is a problem, incidentally. I think... Um, so we got into this debate, and in our world, in the complex world, without noise, there's nothing. In other words, randomness 
is, if you like, the rocket fuel uh, that when filtered through systems of constraint, institutions, for example, um, engines, if you like, um, generate motive force, you know, force for change socially or even in a vehicle. So, um, I mean, okay. So... What David and I tried to show and is that you can mathematize this. And if you're operating in a completely static environment, nothing ever changes, right? Then sure, minimize noise, right? So if you were Kodak and there was no digital revolution, keep making film, right? And... But if there is, <laughs> you want to somehow have some system of exploration in place. You can calculate exactly, actually, how much noise you would like, given how frequently and by what amplitude the environment changes. So we do have theories for that at this point, actually. And um, so the, the zero noise case is a special case where nothing changes. Um, now, there's this other theorem that turns out to be really interesting, and I'm going to geek out here a bit, and it's called the Eigen-Error Threshold Theory. And this is another theory, and it says if noise is too high, then all information is lost. There's a sort of phase transition. It's a little bit like going from a fluid to a, to a vapor. And so if the environment was changing very fast, you might think, right, let's just turn up that temperature, the exploratory temperature, to a max. But there's this upper bound and there's this theorem or theory that tells us that at that level, everything is lost. So you're right. It, there's this kind of, it's not a sweet spot, but it's a sweet zone. Within that zone, you can manipulate the variance, the noise, to suit the volatility of the environment. Above it, there's nothing you can do. And um, so, and yes, we do have theory for this. Very rigorous models, and getting those out into the world somehow is is part of the challenge. Especially when it's got eigen in the front of anything, where <laughs> I know that that scares anyone beyond like sophomore level math. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, interestingly, actually, in this ca interestingly in this case, it's a person. You know, actually, Manfred Eigen. <laughs> so it's not Eigen as in Eigen value. And so it, it should be a little bit less frightening, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Humanize the Eigen. But maybe not, not necessarily as understandable as you'd like it to be because <laughs> it was, you know. Yeah. I loved reading those, uh, the, that back and forth. And, um, uh, and we, um, we actually, in our nudge cards that we use with people for making better decisions, we actually have one for Danny called undesirable variability, which we're going to have to now refine along the lines of how they reject <laughs> congenitive heart failure, I think was the word, right? Um, but it, the, 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 um, when we discuss noise with people and variability, there's a couple of things that tend to happen. First of all is there's generally um, – uh, there's a bias against randomness. People don't like the sound of randomness. That just sounds like, you know, randomness means that I could go out of my house tomorrow and get hit by a car without anything that I did wrong. So it's a, that complete lack of control in the world. Um, so people don't like the idea of randomness. When you present to them 
that some of their their most highly valued creative processes are actually quite random and extremely noisy, especially that, you know, what his creative brain comes up with on a Sunday morning is completely different than what it comes up with on a Tuesday night after a cocktail. (laughs) It's just that that is sort of one of the beauties of being human. And it's interesting to see people, it's almost like one of the ways into this whole conversation about complexity is starting with randomness, is starting with the the sort of coming in through that route that says, hey, you know, randomness actually is kind of good. There's a, there's a, and Brownie in motion keeps our, keeps us alive, whatever. You know, you can start somewhere that people feel more comfortable with the idea that, uh, that uncertainty, randomness, risk aversion, they're all different. But they can all be um, something to, even if you don't like it, at least understand it and see some opportunity out of. Um, that's one of the things I actually really find um, is really positive in the in the complexity world is it doesn't it, it almost starts to break down this idea that anything uncertain or variable or random or looks noisy or it, they still have some sort of level of pattern around them that you can understand. And yeah. People like that. There's a there's a degree of of um, it's not really so much comfort. It's just like it's a bit of sense making. Yeah, sense making is the word I was kind of grappling with, yeah. and um, and it's just it's uh, it's fascinating to watch people sort of click to it to go. Oh, it's not an engineered. The difference between an engineering and um, you know the engineering for complexity feels like freedom. Feels like having another another place in the in the solution space to go to that you don't have to sit there optimizing around a local maximum you can think about something beyond that um and do you how do you how do you nudge people to think outside what they do now if they're resistant to thinking about complexity because there's just so much there and you're such a good ambassador for like the (laughs) ambassador for complexity (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Well, thank you. <laughs> so maybe. Um, I think that the... Let's look at the alternatives, right? Um, so you opened this interview asking what complexity is. The other way that one usually explains this, right, is this domain that balances between the perfectly regular and the perfectly random. And the perfectly regular is, like, the periodic lattice of a crystal. I mean, in other words, death, the inert, right? Um, The perfectly random is a gas, totally chaotic. And so the world that we care about has elements of both, right? I mean, if you went into a forest and it was sort of a Balladian crystal world where every tree was identical, you'd become despondent, right? Um, We are actually perceptually very drawn to complex phenomena. If you think about music, though, here's a perfectly regular regular composition. I was going to play middle C over and over again. You know, you'd shoot me after some period of time, right? (laughs) So, you know, or I'm just going to do what kids do and just jump up and down on a piano, which is equally irritating. So whether it's formally stated or even experientially stated, we all know that we don't like the perfectly regular and we don't like the perfectly random. Now, it turns out that the history of natural science, mathematical natural science, has been obsessed with the regular, celestial mechanics, bit of randomness, quantum mechanics. 
or the perfectly random, the ideal gas law, um, you know, theory of entropy production, Boltzmann, all that stuff. It's the bit in the middle that we're actually drawn to emotionally, intellectually, institutionally, which captures randomness and then uses it to create order. I mean, just think about being a composer, right? You're sitting with your violin and you say, well, I wonder what would happen if I did that. <laughs> and you say, oh, that sounds good. Do that again. So what you've immediately done is you've taken a chance event and you've normalized it, you've routinized it, you've ordered it. And that's the game of evolution. Without randomness, there's no life. Because life was this process, right, of felicitous accidents that then got kept and routinized and, and placed in a system of order and, and on and on it goes. So, you know, and someone might say, oh, that's all very well for a composer or it's all very well for Darwin and evolution. But when I go shopping, you know, I, I want my pint of milk. And I, you know, you know, and I think it's true, right, that there are, over the course of our lives, intervals of time where we want order and when we want randomness and we want some mixtures. So one shouldn't be doctrinaire about it. Um, it just turns out that complexity science tries to theorize about that mixed reality... Um, and in some sense explain regimes where we find it and, and what its value is or what its costs are. And so, in a sense, it's being nuanced about it, and I think my argument and David's argument with Danny was that they were just being... It was weird. I mean, they were being very Newtonian. They were being classical about randomness and suggesting it was always bad, and we thought, well, hardly... So, um, yeah. Well, I, I hadn't decided where I'd got to with the fact that they'd basically always prefaced it as undesirable variability because that does sort of grab the grab the beachhead. Um, but it's there's something there's something even not quite satisfying about that term because it's even undesirable variability might turn into desirable depending on the context. I think that's kind of where I we sort of got to. Um, well, in your world, I mean, I mean, if you think about machine learning, and I guess we'll get there at some point, but I, every single reinforcement learning technique that works makes use of noise. And um, for reasons that we, I think, all understand in terms of overfitting data and prematurely annealing on local optima and all that sort of stuff. And there's just no domain where you're not dealing with the most simple thing, where noise is not required, right? In other words, it's... And to your point, I think, given the uncertainty of outcome, you know, what John Kay calls the need for obliquity, that the past should always be meandering. Well, if that's true, <laughs> then you always need noise. It's It's... It's just difficult to reconcile with the minute-to-minute -minute life that we lead. But if you just step back a little bit, then I think it becomes clear. Well, I guess, too, when you, when you think about how do you know that something's undesirable noise-wise when you're in the middle of a, a system? Because um, one decision might be 
noisy in one case or might be rant, might be slightly outside of the bounds, but it might be the one thing that takes you to the next place that you wouldn't other wouldn't have otherwise gone. And that could happen in auditing and it can happen in medical diagnosis as well. Um, and it's certainly part of that hero's journey, right? The person who breaks out, finds the diagnosis or finds the new product that even though they were sticking inside the in the rules, they just happened to accidentally stumble on something new. So anyway, I thought those were I thought those was wonderful letters to read. I hope there's going to be more instalments coming. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think they refuse. I think after they were so thoroughly defeated in that debate, I think they stepped away. <laughs> At least that's my conclusion. <laughs> so you, you you bring up machine learning, and I have a what I I, I question, um, which is if you think about. Um, the quantity of data that we're now accessing in our daily lives and the amount of machine learning that is being used to create predictions from all of this data, it, it, occur, it feels to me like we're, we're experiencing some sort of amplification of emergence through that basic dynamic. Data across the world coming through machine learning algorithms, the data goes in, new rules come out, and the, all those rules are emerging from whatever data is coming, from people, from devices, etc. Am I on am I on target with that? It feels like when we step back and look across sort of a, and I try to do my sort of history of technology kind of map to think about how things have changed over decades, that it feels like every time I stop and look around that there's yet another example of complexity that is emerging through this modern digital data and ML driven world. Um, I, th- I think I half agree with you and half disagree with you, let's say. Um, oh, let's Either imagine we'll the following. We'll write letters. <laughs> yeah, let's write letters <laughs> to each other. No, because I 100% disagreed with Danny. So, next to letters more fun, right? So, um, we, we're, yeah, we're, we're just too much in agreement to write letters to each other. I think that the... Um, let's take an example. Let's imagine that at the time of the scientific revolution... Just after Bacon's work, the Novum Organum, and all of this theory of gravity stuff, we discovered machine learning. And we fed in it, into it all the data about our beliefs about cosmology. If we had done that and relied on those algorithms, we would still believe that the Earth was the center of the solar system and it was being regulated by God. Okay? The data was overwhelmingly against the, the heretics. Big data hates heresies. Big data is orthodoxy. And this is the thing that I don't think people sufficiently understand. And it's where we're getting into trouble with algorithmic justice, right? Because orthodoxy is decidedly unfair. And so the algorithms simply respect the orthodoxy. Now, where orthodoxy does well is things like chess and go. Because no one has any dispute that those are the rules of the game. And that's how Capablanca and Carlson and Kasparov played, right? So the data is useful. But in any area where you genuinely believe in change, then machine learning gets into trouble and becomes totalitarian. And so, you know, and this is why I I have this love-hate relationship with it, because there's no doubt that it's going to revolutionize domains which are 
in some sense governed by time-invariant norms and patterns. But where there are prospects of radical change, like, for example, the COVID outbreak, all of these methods just fall flat on their face. And um, so we have to be careful here um, because... And the, the two questions that need to be asked are, one, is a history a useful guide to the future? If it is, great. If there are domains where it isn't, don't think the machine learning is going to help you, <laughs> right, in this sense, in the larger sense. Um, it'll still help you, you know, buy a toothbrush. I mean, but, you know. Um, and the other one, B, do you want to be an agent of radical change? And um, and there again, different techniques are required to compel and convince people. So I think there hasn't really been enough nuanced discussion about this. It's certainly very, very um, debated in economics where financial crises are systematically never predicted because we say, look, wonderful, we haven't had a financial crisis for decades, therefore we'll never have one. Or we haven't had a war for ages, we'll never have one, and then Russia invades Ukraine. That's not in a machine learning data set. <laughs> so, now, okay, I just want to make that very clear. Um, on the other hand, as you say, um, the possibility of making connections has never been greater. And from the point of view of complexity, realizing that there are regularities, for example, in the networks governing metabolism and the networks governing ecosystems, that's exactly the kind of thing that we're seeing with large data sets we never would have seen before. Uh, that There are patterns in social phenomena, for example, that would never have been revealed by surveys of 20 people. Um, yes. So I, I, I think what this revolution, and I think it is one, is forcing us to come to terms with is um, what I call the challenge between the, 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 the coarse-grained paradigms of understanding, complexity science, which is a radical move, I think, that wants to introduce new ideas that cannot be gleaned from long histories, versus the fine-grained paradigms of prediction, which work very well in quasi-stationary phenomena, right? things that have been around for a long time and that we can learn from. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that debate needs to be really front and center. I find myself um, thinking back to the work that we've done, thinking about um, human agency in the context of AI. And the more that a system uh, where, the, where human agency is present, the more randomness will be, will be contributed, right? And perhaps the, the data that is representative of that, of that human system can show more randomness and complexity, we, we started talking um, a bit as we were looking at that and looking at the effect of ML and looking at the way that ML systems are trying to predict um, behavior and personalize for us. We, we came up with this concept of the paradox of personalization, that as ML systems want to personalize an offer to you, that actually part of the incentive in the system is actually to make you more predictable, because if the, if, the, if the outcome, right, if the objective is to get you to click, they're going to want you to want to click the thing that they're actually giving you to, you know, get, they're offering you up to. And that paradox continues to be sort of problematic and troubling because 
um, we sort of approached it as a combination of looking at what's possible inside of AI and then a very sort of um, almost existentialist sort of view of agency and choice. And, and, yeah. and when, when does that break? And I find that to be a, um, probably a never ending debate in my own mind about what, when, when you actually have true agency, you know, and I get lots of influence from the person sitting next to me, you know, in my choices, does that mean I have agency or not? But when does it, when does it get conflated and become problematic because of, as you say, a totalitarian ML system? Um, and then at that point there is no randomness. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very important to understand this. And I think that the, um, techno utopians don't understand fully the notion of emergent agency, which is what you're talking about. And our work on individuality is about this really, um, that technology wants something right it's not agent agency free and what it wants is for us to be as predictable as possible to your point and um because then we can mutually maximize our utility functions and that's my nightmare i've talked about this a lot you know that i've never been particularly concerned about super intelligent ais turning us into batteries um, I have been concerned about not very clever apps turning us into greedy automata. And, um, you know, it it's already true, right? I mean, in other words, you go onto Amazon, it tells you what book to read. You go to Airbnb and it tells you what house to rent. Um, it's not going to be very long before we're told what we can and cannot eat based on our physiology and none of these things are in themselves bad right you think well that's great isn't it that it knows that i have diabetes or something and i shouldn't be eating that that isn't bad but but the cumulative effect of all of these recommendations which are self-fulfilling prophecies is enormous conformity and um you know and you'll say look that machine doesn't work well for me that prediction oh, well, you should just do this more so that you conform to the algorithm in order that it can more effectively make recommendations and predictions of your behavior. So there is something very nefarious about all of this. And I wouldn't be surprised if you think about the Luddites and you think about the Reformation, if we're not sort of on the cusp of a social movement, and we all see it in part, that very strongly rejects this world. Um, and of course, that will be monetized too, which is fine. <laughs> but I think that um, I can't really see this continuing because the omega point, you know, in terms of complexity, right, is the collapse of complexity. It's, it's to move us into the celestial orbit style of living, and I don't think we enjoy that either emotionally, ethically, or aesthetically. Yeah, the the Dali, as in you know the movie. Mm. That we wrestle with this a lot um, in human centered design when there's a machine learning piece to it, something where there's by definition a model with a false positive and a false negative, and. Uh, 
it's you can argue it both ways every single time you sit down to do one of these designs because on one hand let's take a health app you know a running app or a health app or something like that on one hand even a teaching app you can predict you can offer up something from the model that says this will be good for you the science says it'll be good for you let's just take that the science is good for you you know eat grains or whatever and um and that's good that could be helpful and that could be quite human-centered but then there's this always this other layer of what's the false negative that that person never got from some other world that's still emerging and and is it even a good thing to just keep pushing things that um are even self-reflectively good for you and we we wrestle a lot with that and it's a very hard aspect of of thinking about ai design when we've sort of got this fundamental bias to want to break out of the algorithm to not be anywhere near that level of conformity and to apply to put some complexity in some degree of randomness without making it look like it's random um that's a really practical challenge it is a practical challenge i mean i'll give you an example from a domain that's um, it's a sort of tangent um so one of my colleagues here sam bowles an economist um advised martin luther king um he wrote this beautiful book where he makes this point that if you think about the future of the political economy we need to be thinking not about good incentives but good citizens and good incentives are easy right tax subsidies carbon tax for example and his point is that incentives are always defined locally the emergent outcomes are not clear right and of course the ground can change under our feet and so all of a sudden the circumstances changed much better to create a good citizen well what's a good citizen right that's a hard conversation to have and that's about empathy and decency and dignity and respect and all these soft things right and um i actually believe and convinced by sam and others that those concepts need to be really elaborated and thought much more carefully about you know we've talked about this sort of spectrum but you know the first things we like to think about are the easiest the things that we see repeatedly and we see on mass the things that we actually talk about with our friends and family and things like this you know um and the question is can a, a kind of science that isn't cold and clinical and deterministic make a contribution and i think it can um but i think that when you're talking about these algorithms when they're good and bad they're still living in this incentive world right um which seems to me far too formulaic and as you said unaware of other complications that are not in that particular app they're in another app somewhere um and i uh, i mean this is why i'm such a fan of the humanities and the arts and um because they're more nuanced in this way 
scientists would love for everything to be reducible to a few metrics and incentives, and I just don't think they can. And I think when we do it, they get gamed. Um, but it doesn't mean we can't think about them more carefully, and I, I think it would be a very worthwhile effort, actually. Um, very interested in these notions of empathy and dignity. Um, you know, and back to where you started with these layoffs, I mean, exactly what's missing. I mean, I, uh, I, I can't understand. I mean, I'm president of an organization made up 99% of people I enormously admire, and they're my friends, you know. I think you, you run a place based on common human decency, not on these metrics. So I, I'm not sure this is very useful, and I know that we're digressing from the science, but I, I do believe there are domains where um, we have to wrestle with more complex concepts. I think it's important because when we're talking about a complex system that involves a group of humans, then dignity and empathy and those concepts are fundamental to it. That's how we act. That is the, the in some ways, the, the motivation for our emergence into the system, I guess. Um, and it's difficult because we don't have a single definition of dignity. We don't have a single definition of respect. Different cultures show respect to other people very different ways. And I'm not sure that we could have a sort of a, uh, a perhaps more sort of mathematical point of view that there is a good way to show respect. Therefore, we should all be optimized to the algorithm in the way that we show respect to each other. Because culturally, that just doesn't work for the 7 billion people on the planet because we grew up in different societies and we have different ways of that 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 that, that is effective for us. Yeah, you know, I can talk directly to that with an experiment actually conducted by a number of our faculty in in a, in the in an area um, called behavioral game theory. And there is a very famous game. Game theorists carve up the world according to very trivial games, you know, Prisoner's Dilemma and so forth. And one of the games they love, and I'm sure you know it, is the ultimatum game. And the ultimatum goes, game goes like this. Someone gives me some sum of money. The, the contract is I have to offer some fraction of that to someone else. If they accept that fraction, I get to keep the remainder. So the neoclassical economist says, so let's say my mum gave that money and I offer it to you too. Let's say my mum gave me $100. The neoclassical optimum is, oh, God, give them the least common denominational unit, a cent, because they should accept that because it would be rational because they're getting something for nothing, and you get to keep the rest. Okay. So what they did is they... Now, it turns out no one would accept that, of course, because it's grossly unfair. I didn't earn the money any more than you did. So what they do is they take this game and they play it in societies all over the world. And they say, what, what fraction do people offer others under this condition, right, that if they don't accept, no one gets it? Um, and if they do, you get your respective fraction. And it completely varies according to the society. So in the West, we tend to offer less than half. We're kind of greedy. I said, well, can't give them... 10%, but I give 30%. And, and, and we tend to accept. You go to other societies, they give more than half. Because what matters is not how much you keep, but how much society sees you as being a contributor. 
right? In other words, your value in society is your generosity, not your selfishness. So this very simple game um, is like a, a microscope that we can use to analyze cultural variation exactly along the lines you're describing. And I think, you know, I, that, that's been a, a, a beautiful tool for, for, for quantifying um, something which feels non-quantifiable, different senses of fairness. And hard to define fairness <laughs> because there's so many different variations. It's so, so many different ways to define it, like you just pointed out. One of the um, – yeah, we've uh, followed Melanie Mitchell's work for years um, and uh, interested in, in how people at, at SFI think and, and, and how you think generally in terms of what, what is distinctly human. And and what is what is creativity? What is what is the thing that sets us apart? And um, over the years, we've uh, we've we started out this journey with actually some you know as as machine learning sort of and AI became more topic of conversation and people wanting to learn about it, uh, uh, the views were pretty pretty unsophisticated. You know, humans are the only the, there's only empathy from humans or well, the doctors will, will will doctors will just talk to people and give them and hold their hands while they tell them a diagnosis, whereas the patients will uh, everything else will be done by machines. You know those kinds of things have have been more granular. We've got more sophisticated understanding about where machines will fit in the system versus humans, but we still grapple to actually define what is essentially human. We've got better at it little bit more sophisticated. Um, I think uh, Marcus de Satoy made some nice contributions around creativity is what we judge to be worthy of something that is creative. But I'm curious how, how you think about what is distinctly human, the great sort of mysteries, the great sort of definitions, the things that, that, um, that, that matter to you uh, and in this world of humans and machines emerging. Yeah, I just wrote a chapter for a book called The Human, and I can't exactly remember what I said. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm sure I... <laughs> so, you know, as, as, you ask, as you were asking the question, I think, oh, God, what did I say it was? So I think that um, a few things to say. First of all, I've always been less interested in what is uniquely human than what is uniquely living. Um perhaps a little bit too much anthropomorphism on this planet and um, so you can ask exactly the same question in reverse right? what is uniquely dolphin you know what is uniquely ant what is uniquely oak those are good questions too and uh, perhaps not equally deserving of attention but certainly uh, deserving as much, of much more attention um, and perhaps Asking that question is what is uniquely human, but okay, that's a meta point. Um, so coming from evolution, one is interested in the special characteristics of all species. And uh, to point one, um, the uniquely human thing is very difficult to answer because we like to talk about the positive virtuous things as opposed to genocide, which is clearly uniquely human. Um, massive levels of pollution, uniquely human. 
You want to say things uh, utterly like, overrunning the planet, <laughs> totally overrunning the planet, uniquely human, <laughs> and denying it, uniquely human. So you know, that sort of side of things. So on the other hand, realizing all those things and trying to do something about it, uniquely human, you know. And so um, from the scientific point of view. It's a very interesting question because it's very difficult to find the thing that's uniquely human. If you actually look at our genome or you look at our nervous system, it's not that we're made of different stuff, right? Um, if I gave you two bodies to analyze, one of them was Homo sapiens and the other was Pan troglodytes, you know, you, you could barely tell. Um, so the clues are not obviously written into our material being. They're there somewhere, right? But they're encrypted or subtle. Um, I've always believed that, and I'm hardly unique in this, um, that our ability to incrementally, collectively construct cultural forms is what we do and and then to become a part of those systems to the extent of being controlled by them now it's clear right that a that an ant society individuals have limited degrees of freedom right in other words they're um and so it's not that social institutions are unique to humans but the fact that we can create these vast edifices of ethics or mathematics or engineering over centuries, um, outsourcing our intelligence to material culture, the latest incarnation of which is machine learning, um, that is clearly something that no other species does. It doesn't have a moral valence, so I think the thing that's uniquely human has nothing to do with morality. And that's where I depart, post-scientific revolution, from theists. Because what a theist would say is what's uniquely human is a sense of goodness. I don't think we're any better than any other species. I don't think on the moral side of the equation we win. Um... And, the, and I guess the question for humanity, if it wants to survive the next century, is how to take the uniquely human bit, which I think is self-evident, right, this idea that we can construct declarative systems of knowledge in the world collectively, um, and orient them towards things that other species do better, namely cooperation. That's interesting. And, and, and that synthesis would be uniquely human. Um, but I don't think that we have any special claim to moral goodness. Um, I don't think that's the uniquely human thing. Not that you said it, but I have heard people claim it. I'm thinking of the some of the debates in the AI community about the morality of different where where AI, where AI and machine learning should fit in that morality, and and how that scales, how you would even put. Values, the whole alignment problem, um, which is a, is a fascinating ongoing project. That project will never end, I don't think, um, unless it ends us. Like, but like you, like you, we don't really worry so much about that as more we do about the individual agency. So, I'd, I'd like to go back to one thing you said earlier. Um, 
which is you you sort of uh, you mentioned that it's that one of the challenges is communicating complexity um, to the world, um, and so I guess I'd like to ask you what how do you think about the best way to communicate complexity, and I guess the alternate way of asking the question is for anyone who's listening who wants to learn more. What's the best pathway to take to start to truly understand, uh, you know, all of these complex topics? Yeah. I don't know if I have the answer to the best. I have a completely partisan answer to what I would like to tell them, you know, based on <laughs> SFI. And so, um, so let me start in, in order the first part. Um, look, um, you know, this is a science institute but that includes natural and social, right? Not just natural science. And the really great revolutions in the sciences were the 17th and 18th century and their percolation into society in the Enlightenment, okay? Our, our belief in the power of reason and evidence and so forth outside of uh, the laboratory, right, or the observatory. In the early 20th century we began to come to terms with adaptive reality using techniques that have been developed in the physical sciences. Um, biologists and physicists are as interested in matter and energy, they're both, but biologists are more interested in information than physicists. Physicists who study black holes are. And in the 1920s, I think, there were the first glimmerings of what we now think of as complexity science, which can also be thought of, right, as this constellation of evolutionary processes, information processing, you know, the efficient use of metabolic free energy, sort of like energy meets information meets computation meets evolution. We're at the very, very early stages of the formalization of that constellation of ideas. Um, look at string theory, right? String theory was an effort to reconcile continuum mechanical systems, relativistic, classical, with quantum mechanics. Utter failure. Okay? Um, we're doing something harder. <laughs> okay? Much harder dealing with the systems that we care about, with agency. They, they just have rocks, right? We have rock stars. It's like a different game. And I think that... So when people ask this question to me, it's, you know, you know, we're just starting. We're just starting to understand how to think about these things. And it's really difficult. And the kinds of explanations that we're going to be coming up with will be very unfamiliar, We've already experienced that vertigo with machine learning. It's a little bit, what is this thing with billions of parameters that I can't get my head around? This feels different, but it works, you know. So that kind of vertigo, I think, is, is going to be very common. Um, so, A, recognizing that we're on, the, on a frontier of a very challenging problem that will be developing very difficult concepts no less difficult than quantum field theory and um, and being ready for that you know um, on the communication front yeah, there's very little you know I mean obviously I'm 
my colleagues here um, at SFI mentioned Melanie's wonderful books on this. We have a MOOC, Complexity Explorer, that people can take. We have a press, SFI Press, where we publish books, slightly more technical, I guess, but not that technical. Um, and, and there are many other institutions in the world that are starting to take this more seriously. Um, obviously, from my point of view, the first place you should look is our webpage. <laughs> and, um, you know, just to disagree with it, if you like, and find something better elsewhere. But not expecting the solutions to come quickly. So that was my point earlier, right, when I said, look how long it took for the Newtonian revolution, or the Darwinian revolution for that matter. I mean, if you think about CRISPR, genetic engineering technology, that's just lifted from prokaryotes. That wasn't... 95% of that invention was done by a microbe, not by a scientist. And so the, the application of Darwinism to solving social problems like human disease and health, is very recent. The early days of Darwinism were much more about our place in nature, right? I mean, how should we understand the divine, the human, and the non-human? That was the debate. Now the debate is genetic engineering. And I think complexity 100 years hence will have that complexion, and we, this conversation will seem kind of quaint. Um... But also, I have a kind of interest in the broader sense of complexity of people wrestling and respectfully with difficult ideas um, and not expecting everything to be a sort of a Netflix show that delivers to you in perfectly pre-digested form an idea. I mean, we're extremely fallible as scientists, I think it was very clear during COVID, we got everything wrong over and over again. And to be a part of that, that, that dialogue, as opposed to being a passive recipient of solutions, would be an incredible advance in society, right? Um, a sort of complex society. Uh, that, that's very alluring to me. It's way beyond citizen science. Um, yeah, because it presupposes staying um, actively engaged in the the the, the problem and the, the wrangling of even what the question is. And um, my I mean, my journey on this was started has been going on as long as I can remember because it's just I'm so curious about complexity and just sort of it just is kind of how I. think think and that's part of just how I was brought up just the family I was brought up in but in the last few years to actually study it as a essentially kind of professional slash lay person rather than actually as a complexity scientist and as a person who's involved in AI and decision making and design I've had to educate myself through far more diverse Roots than um, I even expected. Down, every, down all sorts of rewilded attention <laughs> pathways. There isn't a single place. Um, you, you, I mean, the SFI website is a 
is a terrific place a to fantastic start. Fantastic starting point. <laughs> you, you <laughs> have Thank to you sort very of, much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Check in the post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have you know, to I go through say, so many different places. <laughs> well, you know, but here's something funny for you, because you asked about books and communication, and we haven't talked about the fact that at SFI we've had novelists and artists right from the beginning. And th- arguably the most famous researcher at SFI is the novelist Cormac McCarthy. And, you know, Cormac's last two books, The Passenger and Stella Maris, that I've been talking to him about for 20 years, I mean, that, um, are all about mathematics and, and science. And that's an interesting form of communication, right? We have, you know, actually on the ground as we speak, just over from my office, the wonderful biographer of Alexander von Humboldt, Andrea Wolf, and... Um, her recent book on the origins of romantic philosophy in Jena and, you know, Schiller, Goethe, Schelling. Um, we have Karl Harper, who's the great historian of plagues and the Roman Empire. Um, Ted Chang, of course, uh, the science fiction writer who wrote Story of Your Life that was made by Denis Villeneuve into the film Arrival. They're all here, too. And writing and and doing great history, and that's a very important part of our culture as well. It's not just geeking out on maths and computation; it's communi- communicating complex concepts. And Ted, in particular, um, in his short stories, deals with a lot of science that we do at SFI. You know, and, and visiting now is the other McCarthy, Tom McCarthy, who's the great novelist of dynamics and motion and time and space. His early book C was a beautiful novel on codes so the other way of course to communicate is 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 more subtle is to um look at the aesthetic um social aspects of these concepts and create art out of them um and you know how effective that would be at changing minds i don't know but deeply challenging works and, and, and every bit as worthwhile as the science that we do. Um, thank you so much for indulging us with all of your time. This has been a thrilling. This is wonderful. Thank you for having me and, you know, good luck. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone, on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore.